the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, good afternoon, Bay Area. Attorney Bob Bergman here. I'm broadcasting from my office, as usual, in uh, San Jose, in the Cambrian Park area, if you're familiar with that. I will be taking calls today if anyone would like to call in and ask questions of me. Uh, The number would be 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. Feel free to call in if you'd like to ask me a question on the air. I'm happy to do that, and uh, I'm happy to talk with you today. Um, I'm going to go and start with my usual format today of uh, questions and comments from around the state of California. But uh, I also want to uh, quickly ask for feedback from my radio audience. Uh, If you could please use my email radio at lawbob.com for this feedback. I'm uh, getting ready to bring back live living trust and estate planning seminars. And I'm also considering doing um, a living trust and estate planning webinar or two, and that's hopefully in the next 30 to 60 days. If you could shoot me a quick email and let me know if you have a preference for a live presentation or for a virtual presentation, that will help me to decide kind of which way to go. Um, I have located a uh, a large meeting room near my office that right now, because of COVID restrictions, is limited to about 13 or 14 people attending. Uh, once everything opens up more freely here in Santa Clara County, it probably will get up to 20 or 30 people that could be in there at the same time. Um, my live meeting would be... Um, in this location, uh, you would uh, wear a mask. Um, I will not wear a mask because I'm presenting and it's very difficult to present properly with a mask on. Um, I have had all my vaccinations now, so uh, and I'm past the two weeks from the last one, so I'm now uh, apparently safe and, uh, and I consider myself to be safe and, and I feel safe around people. Um, so, in any event, if you could email me at rpb at lawbob.com and let me know if you would be interested in a live seminar or a virtual seminar or you don't care which one, that would be greatly appreciated. So, 
quick sip of water there. So, um, without further ado, let me let me go ahead and uh, get started with the show today. Now, here's someone out of San Francisco says, "I would like to put my growing crypto assets into a living trust so they can't be depleted in case of medical bills." Well, let's pause right there. If you set up a revocable living trust, that does not provide any asset protection of any kind against creditors, including creditors such as medical bills. So um, this person um, doesn't apparently doesn't really understand what a living trust does. They could put their assets into an irrevocable trust, but then they wouldn't own them anymore. They couldn't own them anymore. This person wants to give um, the property to their partner's child when they die. Um, but then they said the assets are less than $150,000. Can I still put these asset accounts into a living trust? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, you can put any value of assets into a living trust. In my career, uh, I think the smallest amount that I ever put into a living trust was $50,000. It was all the person had was $50,000. The only reason that we did a trust even though technically one would not have been required under California law, even at that time because of the value of the estate, was because the person's only child uh, she considered to be financially incompetent. And so she left the money in such a way that it would pass to her child in trust with somebody handling it for the child instead of the child getting it directly. She was afraid that if her child got that $50,000, he would use it to buy drugs and end up essentially killing himself in the process. So she wanted to make sure that it was there to help take care of him as much as possible, but that he couldn't get direct access to it. So you can set up a living trust with any value of assets, but a living trust is not going to provide any protection against medical bills. Um, that's a commonly held misconception that putting your property into a trust will protect it from creditors. Well, only putting property into an irrevocable trust can protect it from creditors. But when you do that, you also don't own the property anymore and you also cannot receive any benefit from the property. It can't be there for your own benefit because then creditors can actually get to it. Now, speaking about living trusts, uh, this person out of Hawthorne, California, said, my mother and my stepfather want to set up a living trust, but they wanted to know if their overseas assets are included or would they have to go to that country and set up another one over there? They reside in California. Well, the short answer is a living trust in the United States can own property that is located in the United States and only in the United States. It cannot own property that is overseas. You would have to do whatever planning is available in that country where those assets are located. And if there's more than one country, then it's more than one set of planning. In fact, I do have a number of clients that have overseas assets, whether it's in Europe or Asia or or Canada, or Mexico, or South America, or Africa. And uh, 
what I always do in the planning here in the United States is make it very, very clear in the person's will that it that their will only covers assets that are located within the United States. Now, with a trust, you title those assets into the trust name, but there's always a special type of will that I prepare called a pour-over will, which is designed to make sure that assets that somehow were left out of the trust that maybe should have been in the trust will instead make it into the trust. But we want to make sure that overseas assets are not affected by someone's pour over will because that can create tremendous problems. It's not really possible for a trust in the United States to own property of any kind in another country. It just doesn't work that way. And that could create some real issues if a United States will was used to somehow transfer or try to transfer ownership of property in another country into the trust here in the United States. Okay, well, coming up on the first break of our show today in about a minute or so, and and I just wanted to reiterate that uh, I'm bringing back my Living Trust and Estate Planning seminars. I plan on doing them both in person and possibly also uh, as webinars for those who feel more comfortable or would just to prefer a webinar. And uh, I'd like you to email me at radio at lawbob.com if you have a preference or if you don't have a preference so I can get a sense of how my listening audience feels about that. So when we come back after this first break, I'll continue with more questions and comments from around the state of California. This is attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio, and I will talk with you on the other side of the break. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. So, uh, Let's get back to more questions and comments from around the state of California. And uh, here's one that's a little bit off to the side of estate planning, but still it does, uh, it uh, can impact people. This person says, um, I'll be 18 and nine months and five days, yet my mom always puts me down. Okay, well, you know, that's not unusual for a teenager to be unfortunately put down by a parent. Um, the person says, I have my own business and I'm looking to move out. I have places I can stay. I know she won't give me permission to leave because she wants me to be miserable. What can I do to leave my mom's house at 17 years of age? Well, here's the thing. Here in California, we have what's called an emancipated minor. An emancipated, mean a freed minor, is someone who's under the age of 18 but has gone to court and has legally obtained a court order saying that they are now legally able to act on their own behalf, be on their own, and transact their own business uh, contracts and things like that. I mean, uh, famous emancipated minors 
included uh, Drew Barrymore, uh, the the actress, and Alicia Silverstone, the actress, uh, actress, both of whom were making a lot of money as uh, minor teenagers, and both of whom wanted to have control of their own monies and their own destinies and not have it be in the control of parents. So it, it's a matter of this person, if she wants to legally move out of the mother's house, then she needs to uh, get an attorney who can represent her in court to petition the court where she's at um, to become emancipated from her mother if um, or his mother. Um, if this person has their own business and can demonstrate to the court the ability to support himself or herself, they may just very well be successful. Um, and even just starting an action like this, the parent might very well um, agree to um, step out of the picture um, because that would also mean that the parent may no longer have any legal liability to care for or provide for the child if the child has become emancipated. So that is something that could actually be done in a case like this. And 17 is not a magic age. I'm not sure what the lowest age is for emancipation. I think it might be 16, but it could be younger than that. And it's certainly something worth looking into by this person if he or she wants to actually be able to legally move out and live on their own and be their own person. Okay, now here's a situation of, out of Ontario, California, which unfortunately is very, very commonplace. It involves um, a living trust. It involves pro real property owned by the living trust that's taken out of the trust to do a refinance of the loan, but not put back into the trust ownership. So here, this person said, my husband and I took out a loan with the bank. They took our property out of our revocable trust and we were told verbally it, that it would be put back in and they never did it. So let's pause right there. First of all, this is a lender that for whatever reason decided that this couple needed to take probably their residence out of the ownership of the living trust in order to put a new loan onto the property. There is really no legal reason why this quote has to be done. Uh, here it's only done because the lender made it one of their requirements. There's no law that says you have to do that. Um, but here the issue is husband has dementia. We cannot sign the paperwork the bank sent us to return the property to the trust. So it looks like after the fact the bank finally sent the paperwork um, after the loan was made, and now it's too late. If the property's not in the trust, do we no longer have a trust since the trust was created to protect the property? Um, if the property's not owned by the trust, my, my question would be twofold. Um, number one, did the husband execute a financial power of attorney in favor of the, the spouse which would give the spouse the authority to transfer property um, in the husband's name into the ownership of the trust that he and his spouse have. Um, 
powers of attorney typically have that power. And if there was a power of attorney done with the trust at the same time, which would be the common practice, there's a way for the spouse to sign on behalf of the now uh, husband who now has dementia in order to get it into the trust. Um, if there is no such, um, if there is no such uh, power of attorney, then there's a problem. It, it may be that the spouse will have to go and establish a conservatorship over the husband in order to get authority to sign the husband's name on the paperwork as the conservator of the husband to get it put into the trust that it came out of in the first place. Um, I warn people regularly that if you're going to refinance, always direct as part of the escrow that paperwork be drawn up to put your property back into your trust ownership so it's all signed at the same time. I will say that a couple times a year I get contacted by clients of mine who had um, either had refinanced and that was not done and then they realized it later uh, or they've purchased a new property, a new home and uh, they didn't take the title in the name of the trust and then they realize it's not in their trust and then I typically do the paperwork for them to sign to get it back into the trust ownership. Um, especially if I did the original paperwork, it's uh, not that complicated to redo the deed with new dates and everything on it and get that signed and the paperwork filed and get the property back into the trust. If someone dies, if actually both these people died before they could do that, then we're left with, is there any written evidence that they intended this property to be in their trust? Uh, prior ownership in the name of the trust is probably sufficient for a court through a Hegstat petition to actually uh, get this property into the trust. If they had uh, what's called a, a pour over will, um, then that might also be evidence of intent that it be back in the trust. But obviously, the best possible thing is to make sure it's titled properly after a refinance and titled properly when you buy some new property. That's just, uh, there's really no way that is better than making sure the title is proper when you set things up. Okay, so we're coming up on the uh, bottom of the hour. And uh, I just want to tell you, uh, I am taking calls if you'd like to call in today. It's 800-516-1220. I'd love to talk to someone on the air today. It's been a while since I had a call in. So please feel free to call 800-516-1220. And I'll see you on the other side of a bottom of the hour break. This is attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your State Radio. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. So, I'm going to continue with more questions and comments from around the state of California and um, continue for this third segment. So, let's dive right in. Here's one out of Los Angeles, and I bet this is something you don't hear every day. This person asked, if I create a trust to donate my estate to the state to provide for public education, will my estate be taxed too? I assume what the person's really asking is that if they create a trust 
that's intended to actually donate their uh, taxable estate, uh, excuse me, their, their estate after death to the state, indicating that it is earmarked for public education, will there be a state tax on that estate? I believe the answer is going to be no to that uh, for the simple reason that uh, donating to a political entity such as a state is considered to be uh, a tax-free gift or donation. Um, It's not going to be subject to a state tax at the federal level. So I think that's pretty much the answer right there, um, that there will not be any federal estate tax on that gift when the person dies if they set up a trust to leave their estate to the state. Now, I would assume probably the better thing would be to leave it to one or more specific school districts or um, leave it to a specific college or university um, rather than just to the state. Because if it goes to the state, I can pretty much guarantee probably not going to end up being used for public education. They'll use it for something else. Because after all, who's going to um, say otherwise? Um, But still, I guess someone could do this. Kind of unusual. But again, if someone is a strong believer in public education, I could see them doing that. Now here, Citrus Heights, California. Person said, I was recently married. I'm in the process of changing my legal last name. My husband and I own our primary residence together within Sacramento County and need to update the deed to reflect my new married name. Now, one of the exemption reasons for exemption from the $75 Building Homes and Jobs Act fee is documents recorded concurrently in connection with a transfer of real property that is a residential dwelling to an owner-occupier. Um, yeah, and the question is, are they exempt if they do a new deed just to change the name? Um, certainly, if it is their residence, uh, doing a new deed will, in fact, not uh, cause uh, them to be charged the $75 fee. That's typically going to apply when someone... Um, when someone changes the title to, uh, for example, from their individual name to a trust name for a rental property or something like that. But for your personal residence, any transfer like that will be exempt from that fee. But it's important that the exemption be stated on the fee, uh, on the rather on the deed transferring and the basis for the exemption. Uh, otherwise, the recorder will assess that fee and expect to be paid the $75 fee. So you have to claim the exemption right on the deed and then cite why you're subject to the exemption. Okay, uh, here's a question from people. Okay, um, let's see. Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. All right. It says, uh, which is better? Um, my mom owns her house and does not have much in the way of assets. She's debating on just putting my sisters and I on the deed to her house or a living trust. Are there any benefits to either? Obviously, they need to find a way to keep taxes down, too. 
Okay, I would say mom should create a living trust to own her house. If she right now, since it's after the uh, effective date of Proposition 19, if she added her children's name to the title of the property now, there would be an immediate reassessment of the property taxes, um, reflecting of the percentage ownership interest of the children on the deed. It would be immediately reassessed, and that would not be a good thing. Uh, That would not keep taxes down at all. By putting the property into a trust that is owned by, uh, that, that owns the property, the mom can still control the property. At her death, the children will receive a new cost basis in the property for income tax purposes. Um, the property taxes will go up unless uh, one or more of the children are intending to occupy the property as their residence and the value is not more than a certain amount. I'm not going to go into the details there, but um, but if they're not going to keep the property as their residence, then the property taxes would go up. But I would say you want to put it into a living trust in order to be able to control it, to handle it properly, and, and to also have it quickly pass after the mom dies um, without going through the probate process in any way, shape, or form. Okay. All right. Um, How can I show proof of income if my distributions are non-taxable? Currently, I'm a beneficiary of a trust worth at least $10 million dollars but it's mostly assets, namely rental property. So my question is, how can I show that these properties will bring in profit? I'm trying to get a home loan, trying to prove my trust income, but the trustee has or will not provide itemized tax planning documents. Okay, I'm not sure what's going on here. If this person's the beneficiary of a trust with rental property, then that means it's likely that that trust is supposed to be distributing some portion of that rental property to the beneficiary, and then the trustee would have the obligation to actually not only make that distribution, but to give tax documents to the beneficiary showing the amount of the income distributed and the nature of the income distributed so that the beneficiary can pay tax on that. So I'm not sure just what the issue is here other than there may be the trustee is just being a jerk and is not really doing a proper job as the trustee, which of course can happen and happens more frequently than people want to admit. Okay. Um, Okay. um, So here, let's see. Uh, Okay, that looks to be the, the uh, okay, here it says, person lives, lives in San Diego. Uh, I own my home with a home equity, um, home equity line of credit. I think that's what they mean. No spouse, no children, just a younger sister. 
I want my sister to have my home as well as my car, furnishings, artwork, jewelry, etc. after I pass. She lives in Florida. Should she pass before me, I want to leave everything to specific charities. What's the best option, a living trust, a poor will, or just a standard will? Living trust, hands down. Um, you want to have the living trust own the property, um, also have uh, 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 an assignment of the personal property that was identified into the trust ownership. It can then state on your passing, everything goes to your sister. If she's predeceased you, then everything goes to the charities. The key is going to be making sure that you have a trustee or series of trustees that you've named or nominated that could actually be available to take over and implement the um implement the trust itself um if your if your sister's not the trustee but she's already deceased then uh, someone who can actually make sure things are handled and distributed ultimately to the charities that that you have identified so that is um that is kind of the answer to that there Okay. Okay. I don't really know how to answer that one. Uh, I'm going to pass on that one. It it seems like it probably would take some kind of court action, but I'm not going to spend any time there. Okay. Uh, all right. That's one dealing with a cemetery plot. I don't know that that's really um, an issue I can cover here. Okay, um, plaintiff has filed a frivolous lawsuit against me, um, suing me over my living trust because he wants me to amend parts of it. I'm the grantor and it's a revocable living trust. He's been harassing me about my trust and is now suing me over it. What will the judge do about this? Um, well, I would tell you that it's very likely that the judge would just throw the whole thing out because if it's a revocable living trust, unless you had a contract to have something specifically in your trust uh, contract with this person, they have no business suing you over your revocable living trust. It's the kind of thing that is likely going to go about as far in court as you could throw a building, which is to say, not as all. Okay. So, Coming up on the third break of the show today, when we return, we'll finish up the show with more Plan Your Estate Radio. This is your host, estate planning attorney, Bob Bergman, and I will get back to you and finish out the show after this final commercial break. Talk with you then. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Uh, welcome back for the final segment of the show today. I hope you have been uh, entertained and educated as we go forward. Um, uh, this is the uh, shortest segment of the show, but um, in many ways kind of my favorite segment because it's your last chance to call in if you have a question, 800-516-1220. Otherwise, I will finish out the show today 
with some more questions and comments from around the state of California. Okay, out of San Bernardino, California, someone want to know who's entitled to receive an accounting of a trust. Says, if I'm not a named beneficiary, but I'm an heir at law, and I guess what they mean there is someone who would inherit from the person if they didn't have a trust, am I still entitled to receive an accounting of my father's trust from the trustee? Uh, the answer is basically no. If you are not a beneficiary of a trust, you are not a person that's entitled to receive an accounting of the trust, its assets, income, everything else. Uh, only trust beneficiaries are entitled to the fact. The fact that you are an heir but not a beneficiary suggests that you may have actually been disinherited by the person who created the trust, whether it's a parent or some other relative, and uh, and you would not be able to receive or be entitled to an accounting for that reason. You're entitled to a copy of the terms of the trust because you would be an intestate heir, but that doesn't mean, and that's to give you an opportunity to uh, file a a contest or attack the trust or maybe say it was somehow obtained and the person who made it didn't know what they were doing or they were misled or there was fraud. But as far as an accounting, you're not entitled to an accounting of the trust itself. Okay. Um, In a living trust regarding a beneficiary that died? Oh, wait a minute. We got a call. I got a call, I think, Jennifer from South Pasadena. Well, yes. um, hi, Bob. How are you? Yes, hi. Okay. Yes. I have a quick question. For, I have a quick question for you. You know, the, um, uh, the, uh, I have a question. Uh, I, I actually, I've been married for, for like the, uh, the, uh, like, like for five years and the, I, I would like to know and then I would like to know that the, uh, if I, uh, I, I actually bought the house right before I got married. So what happened, you know, is the uh, and if anything go, goes wrong with me, it's my uh, can my husband that got that take the house because I bought this house or before I get married, I I already pay off completely on this house. Well, I, I guess my first question is: before you got married, uh, did uh-huh. you and your future husband enter into any kind of property agreement? regarding the properties that you or assets that you own before you went into the marriage that's the first question not at all not at all not at all i actually bought, second, yes i actually bought second this question house. is uh, let, let me ask questions it's going to be easier if you let me ask questions and you answer them um the second question is um when you purchased this house was it purchased outright so there was no mortgage of any kind uh no, I actually you know I, I I bought the house and I and I and I slowly paid off and and I paid completely off and after that I got married. Okay, so when you got married, the house was free and clear of any mortgage. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct, Bob. That's exactly okay. right. Now, in the marriage itself, are both you and your and your spouse working? Uh, the the. Uh, actually, yes, I I do work, and he also work. Yes, but this house, you know okay. what? This, this house, I, and where I, does I, the money I, I, come from? Where does the money come from 
to pay the property taxes and insurance on this house that you owned before the marriage? Before the, I actually went to work, and the uh, and and this house, you know, my uh, me and my sister, you know, my sibling, they all we bought this house together. There's yeah, and, and right now, you know, we all working. Okay, so there's pre- other people. There's others on the title to this house. That's very important information. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, okay. What you have, you have a situation where it's possible that because of the marriage, if money has been used from the marriage to pay for property taxes, maintenance, um, the insurance on the property, that your spouse has been acquiring some kind of community property interest in the house, not a full 50% of your interest, but some kind of interest from the time that you got married. This is primarily a family law question as to what interest might be there. They have elaborate calculations that family lawyers do, uh, and it's not really an issue unless you go to in the marriage or if you pass away before he does, if he asserts some kind of claim, some kind of spousal claim, um, maybe even to be supported. Are you living in the house? Yes, I am. Uh, You're both living in the house. Well, he may have some spousal rights to at least stay in the property for a time if you die before he does. Uh, Beyond that, my suggestion would be that you consult with a family lawyer there in South Pasadena and direct your questions to that person because they're the better attorney to answer them. I have to say goodbye now because the show's ending in about... 20 seconds, but thank you for calling in, Jennifer. Thank you for being a listener all the way down there. And uh, to all the rest of you out there, I should be back next Friday for more Plan Your State Radio. Have a great weekend. And this is Attorney Bob Bergman. Goodbye. Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved.